Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. And people sometimes ask me why I went to law school. And there's a very simple answer. I went because I wanted options. I think that law trains you to do work in the private sector. You learn how to read a contract, which is always helpful. Uh, it trains you for work in the public sector. You learn how to change institutions and practices uh, and to reform things that need to be reformed. And one of the great things about my law school experience was that I started actually learning what it meant to be a lawyer uh, while I was a student. Uh, when I was in law school, I worked in a legal aid clinic. A clinic is where law students have the chance to work on real cases, but we were supervised, not just running off rogue. We worked with legal professionals, with law professors, with outside lawyers. And in a clinical program, students really have the chance to do, um, to get hands-on experience and to do some really world-changing things, frankly. I heard about some of the work that the students at my alma mater were up to, and I was really inspired. They are bringing cases where they're standing up for veterans. They helped get someone out of jail who'd served 17 years for a crime he didn't commit. They helped establish a community bank, which provides financial products to low-income consumers. They've secured nationwide injunctions. Uh, frankly, I mean, they're doing the type of work that you would really expect of much more seasoned professionals. And I was inspired by it. I thought that it could be inspirational for all of us. I, I thought it was a bit of a reminder that we don't necessarily have to reach that next stage in life before we start spreading our wings and start trying to change things that we believe need to be changed. I had the chance to talk about this with the dean of the Yale Law School, Heather Gerken, who is a legal phenom in her own right. Uh, she's one of the country's leading experts on constitutional law and election law. She's done work on election reform. Her scholarship's been featured in Time, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Atlantic, a whole bunch of fancy law journals. Uh, it's been all over the place. She was named one of the nation's 26 best law teachers. She's the first woman dean in Yale Law School history. And she herself runs a clinic that does some really groundbreaking work. So one of the first things I talked about with Dean Gherkin was why she thought it was important for students to get this type of hands-on legal experience at the same time that they're still learning how the law works. My own view is that there's long been this sort of divide. People call it the theory-practice divide, and they act like what you learn in law school is completely different from what you do in practice and, and never the twain shall meet. We just reject that idea. And one of the ways in which we work really hard to connect the two is that we have our students going back and forth every week between classes where they learn the law and then clinics where they apply the law. And the work they're doing in the clinics is just dazzling. I mean, some of these cases are cases that you would be lucky to have once in your life as a lawyer. And our students are getting them in their second semester of their first year. Students. We just believe our students can do anything. So you just mentioned this case um, for veterans. You know, our students asked around when they, we started the veterans clinic here, and they said, why can't veterans bring class actions uh, against the federal government? 
And they were told, well, that's how things have always been. And I will just tell you, if you want to tick off a Yale Law student, that's a good answer. So the students (laughs) sat down, they mapped out a strategy, they wrote the brief, they argued the cases, and they won this victory turn seismic. One of our students in the Second Circuit was arguing the nationwide injunction in the DACA case. And people said to us, well, you can't have a student arguing it. The case is too important. And we said, no, our students can do this. They can, they can do absolutely anything. And you know, the proof is in the pudding. This law school, our clinics, have won three nationwide injunctions in two years. To my knowledge, I think the only other organization that has done that is the ACLU. It has hundreds of lawyers doing that. We did it with a handful of faculty and students. And so we're just, we're just invested in it. I think the second thing that really matters is that the students are always moving between direct representation of clients and then those big structural questions. So a lot of the cases that we bring come from day-to-day interactions with people in need and seeing that a single case is not going to do the trick to, to solve their problems and trying to think bigger about the policy and big law interventions that need to be done and then having the, the confidence in oneself and the, the creativity to do it. So it's, it's nothing but exciting, and, and we're just thrilled for it. Tell me a little bit about the case that the students brought on behalf of the class of veterans. The case was actually simple in some ways. There had been decades and decades of precedent that prevented veterans from doing what every other American citizen can do, which is bring a class action against the federal government. And when the students realized this, they needed to think about how it is that you overturn that precedent what is the legal strategy to do it and then to actually implement it? It took them a long time uh, to move through the federal circuit, which is where those cases get heard. Uh, and, you know, it, it took it took real legal acumen. It took a lot of hard work and research. It took brilliant oral argument and they managed to do it. And now that case has resulted in this clinic, this little clinic at the law school being the class representative for every major service branch for veterans um, who are in need on, on these cases. We'll come back to the conversation with Dean Gherkin in just a bit, but I first wanted to say just a little bit about one of the other cases that the students worked on. It involved a man named Vernon Horn. Uh, They helped him get out of jail after he'd served 17 years out of a 70-year sentence for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, The crime was a convenience store robbery. Uh, He was 17 years old at the time. His trial lawyer did no investigation, did not hire an investigator, did not review the state's evidence before trial. And as you might expect, Vernon was convicted. Uh, There were some twists and turns in this case. He got out temporarily on an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, uh, but then he was sent back to jail uh, by the state Supreme Court. He went on a hunger strike and he wrote a letter uh, asking uh, asking if his case was still going to be prosecuted if he died. Uh, because he wanted the daughter that he had while he was uh, released temporarily to know that he was innocent. So that letter came to the attention of David Keenan, uh, a Yale Law School graduate and federal defender. Keenan and a team of law students uh, from Yale uncovered evidence that both Vernon's lawyers and the state's prosecutors uh, had overlooked during the trial. Um, they, along with a law professor from Quinnipiac, Sarah Russell, uh, public defender Kelly Bar- uh, Barrett, some pro bono lawyers from Arnold and Porter, uh, they all commenced this reinvestigation of Vernon's case. 
And that reinvestigation turned over not just new evidence that the state had overlooked, but also that two of the state's witnesses had perjured themselves. So at the conclusion of that fresh look that Vernon's case received, uh, the state decided not to defend his conviction and he became a free man. So there's some justice for you. So back to my conversation with Dean Gerken. Uh, she runs her own clinic and I asked her about it. It, it actually began almost 14 years ago with a simple conversation with, with someone who was a city attorney in San Francisco. San Francisco has an enormous power to bring affirmative litigation. That means that instead of the kind of usual defense work that most cities do, they actually can bring affirmative suits on behalf of the public. They can actually sue on behalf of the entire state of California as if they were the attorney general. And the city has systematically used that power to do good in the world. And so we have worked in our clinic on the same-sex marriage case at trial regarding Prop 8. We worked on a $1 billion lead paint case, the first case uh, to actually succeed in winning against the lead paint industry. My, my students helped win one of the nationwide injunctions in the Sanctuary City Order, bringing protection to sanctuary cities across the country. So the work is just fantastic and exciting, and it's really a good way of showing students that government lawyering is honorable uh, and that there's great work to be done on that side. So that's why I love it. What's also great is that it trains a generation to serve. So we have launched students who are now alumni of ours working across the country in in attorneys general offices, uh, in in city uh, offices, all across the country doing this work themselves. And so it's created sort of a new vision of what you can do if you want to do civil rights work, if you want to do immigration work, if you want to do consumer protection work, a new new vision of what uh, can be done on this front using tools that have been there for a long time for states and cities but really haven't been taken up until San Francisco and some state attorneys general led the way. Let's talk right now for a moment about rule of law. It's a term that gets tossed around a lot and sometimes it seems that it's become a partisan or political term. Um, I, I don't think that should be the case. There is a rule of law clinic that takes place at the law school, and I asked the dean to tell me a little bit about it. That is one of the most exciting clinics on the planet, I will tell you. <laughs> um, they, they do three kinds of work. Um, they do work in the area of the environment, so they've been doing a lot of work on the Paris Climate Accord. They do a lot of work on national security, so they represent a bipartisan group of national security experts members of cabinet, secretaries of state, really extraordinarily impressive people. And they go into national security cases and file amicus briefs on behalf of that group, making headlines every time they do, not just because the group is so important, but because they're bringing information in to judges about how national security really works that is really important if you are worried about executive overreach in a case. And then the last thing that they're doing, and I'm really envious here because I'm an elections lawyer, they're doing some of the best elections work around. They're bringing a case against the Trump administration for understaffing and under-resourcing the census count. That is important for every community in the country. It is especially important for poor people and for people of color who are often undercounted in the census. This is what federal dollars depend on this. Voting power depends on this. A lot depends on it. And our students are actually litigating this suit under a claim that's never been brought before. 
The other, the other case that they are doing, which I just so admire, is that they're doing a prison gerrymandering case. And it, people have not had a lot of success in bringing prison gerrymandering cases. This is about the practice of counting prisoners in, in the place where they're imprisoned rather than the cities from which they came, which, as you might imagine, can lead to real disparities in, in redistricting. And they are bringing this case. People haven't had a lot of success with it, and suddenly our students arrived, and they're moving forward on the case. It's just, it's just dazzling, and we're enormously proud of the work that they're doing. It seems sometimes uh, in the current environment that the whole concept of rule of law uh, can be politicized when really it isn't. How do the students walk that line? Uh, because protecting the Constitution, protecting access uh, to the ballot box, making sure that everyone's counted for purposes of state and federal resources, those shouldn't be partisan issues. Sometimes it seems as if they've become that. How do the students kind of navigate that? Because certainly, you know, you've got people of all political persuasions who are doing this sort of work. It's a really good question. I mean, it's actually a question for the entire law school and the entire profession. And when, when I think about what the rule of law means, I think about it as the enduring values of a democracy and a legal system that, that stand up against any challenge. You know, so we lawyers know how to argue. We can argue about everything. Um, everyone thinks, you know, oh, they're hired guns. They don't believe in anything. But that's just not true. I think lawyers believe really deeply in the values that are enduring. And the way we know they're enduring is that after a century of arguing about them, they still stand. Those basic values of democracy and equality and process, those are the values that still stand up against every argument. One of my colleagues uh, gave me the, the one phrase. He says, you know, it says this is when there's no argument on the other side. And the one thing about being trained as a lawyer is you learn to tell the difference between arguments where there's reasonable disagreement and arguments where there really is no argument on the other side. And so that's what we try to teach our students. They're all learning it. Uh, we're all trying to figure it out as we go. We're all struggling with the terrible partisanship that exists right now. But I think that's that's how I think about it as the core of this profession. You know, law is often a mechanism for social change, but it really works hand in hand with other elements uh, in society that change the national conversation. You know, it's usually after those other elements uh, get a new conversation going that the law steps up to try to reform institutions uh, and, and, you know, sort of uh, uh, the bigger picture framework. So I, I spoke to Dean Gherkin about how, even in the midst of all of this bitter partisan division, the national conversation can change. How do you change a national conversation in the middle um, of all of this? And how do you ensure that more voices can be heard among the very, very loud din? It's hard to get a national conversation going about anything. So there is there are very few things in the world that reach the national level that haven't gone through the state and local levels first. So whether it's conservative or liberal causes, progressive causes, whatever you, you want, they're almost always starting with a local conversation and then a statewide conversation. They're moving through those smaller policy arenas as they build up momentum to go up to the national government. So, so one point is just to point that out, that if you really want to get something done, you almost always have to start at the state and local level to move forward that big policymaking wheel we call the federal government. And so my focus is not on states' rights, but on the ways in which the state and local, local government 
can jumpstart a movement for change that ultimately reaches the national level and becomes a national policy. And you've talked about how some of those local movements have in fact escalated into national policy, uh, both in the case of Obamacare, which really started, uh, you know, its proving ground was Massachusetts, which had a similar uh, health care plan for uh, its state's residents. Uh, or if you look uh, back, you know, on my side of the country, the gay rights movement and the gay uh, marriage movement really has its roots in San Francisco, where local politicians were uh, forging their own path. And then that ultimately became national policy. So it does really what you're describing then is that is the notion of change kind of coming from the ground up. Count me as impressive how much of homework you've done for this. That's a really beautiful summary of the work that I do. And and, it, and it's true for both sides. So the same-sex marriage movement is one example on one side, but you see um, gun reform and religious reform moving through states and localities on the conservative side. So the way I see it is it, it's, it's out there for anyone to use the tool. The question is whether you're going to bother to use it. And one of my efforts is to convince people that if you really care about change, you've got to take advantage of every tool that you've got. Speaking of which, I I read another interview with you where you said something that was so uh, powerful to me. Um, You talked about the difference between speaking truth to power and speaking truth with power. Can you just say a little bit about that? Because um, it it really resonates, but I, I think I'd like to hear your, your, I think I'd like to hear your take on it. Sure. So, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how governments are structured. So states, um, juries, you know, cities, juries, all these kinds of, there's tons of little or little bodies all scattered throughout our country that form governance. It's not just the federal government. And one of the things that I'm always struck by is that usually when we talk about empowerment, whether we're talking about racial minorities or dissenters, we always talk about diversity. And when we say diversity, we mean that the institution looks like America, to use Bill Clinton's phrase when he described his own cabinet. That is, it, it replicates the same populations uh, that exist nationwide. And that's certainly one account of diversity and one account of empowerment. But you got to notice something about it, that what it does is it systematically reproduces the same numeric qualities that exist at the national level on every decision-making body going down. And so you will never have, for example, a group that is in the minority at the national level actually empower at the local level. So I I first cut my teeth as a scholar on the Voting Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act is premised on the idea that it's really helpful to have black majority districts and Latinx majority districts, districts where a group doesn't just have to be sort of a dissenter or a swing vote, but actually gets to wield power unto themselves. That That's where my work goes on this front. And so I talk a lot about the relationship between our democratic values and the idea that sometimes it's useful to turn the tables, to have the usual losers win and have the usual winners lose, just so that we don't reproduce the same inequalities at the, at the local and state level that exist at the national level. I think that that's really important because it's one thing to be able to just, it's one thing to have a seat at the table it's another thing to uh, help influence and control the agenda of the meeting. And I think that what you're talking about really speaks to that. You know, when I think about the whole idea of federalism and what it is and states, red states, blue states, we're all one country. 
It strikes me that there's an element of federalism that is about underscoring our mutual inner dependence on one another um, rather than this permanent balkanization. We seem pretty balkanized. How does the idea of mutual interdependence take hold in an environment where people really seem to, I mean, we hate each other seemingly as much as we did uh, right on the eve of the Civil War? Well, it's a great question. And it is, I think, the question um, that's going to be faced by everybody in my field going forward. So I think some people think of federalism as just the idea that everyone retreats to their little comfortable enclaves, whether they are red enclaves or blue enclaves, and doesn't interact with each other. And I think that gets it completely wrong. We have failed as a democracy if everyone just goes into their little enclaves and rules themselves. I think that the way to understand federalism and the way to understand our system is that we've created a system where populations vary, people have different views, but they're constantly bumping into one another. And sometimes they bump into one another when they have a a fight over what's going to happen at the national level, and that's a helpful conversation to have. And sometimes they just bump into one another because when when one state regulates, another state is affected. So we call those spillovers, and most people think spillovers are a bad thing, but actually what they end up doing is they tee up debates between states uh, and, and types of people who would not normally talk to one another. That's also healthy for our democracy. So I, I imagine a federalism that's not siloed, that doesn't involve isolation and enclaves, but it involves constant interaction with a group of people who may have different views than you do, but ultimately with whom you're going to have to compromise if you want to get something done. It was never supposed to be easy, Dean Gherkin, was it? It was never planned. <laughs> our, our national experiment was never planned to be easy. So listen, before you go, I discovered this fact about you that um, shouldn't really surprise me given all the things that you managed to keep on your plate. But I read that you wrote vampire novels for your daughter where she was the heroine and the purpose was to sort of show her strong womanhood. Uh, you wrote vampire novels. That's incredible. That's that's kind of fun. What, what brought you to do that? Uh, well, you know, I used to tell my daughter stories uh, when she was really little um, and made her the heroine. So, you know, Anna and the quest for the three golden arrows. And, uh, you know, eventually she got old enough that she started reading by herself. And I sort of felt like we lost that. And there was one day when I was telling the same stories to her brother, Ben, except for Ben wanted to save for some reason his cat, whereas Anna always wanted to save her brother. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I came outside of ben, Ben's door and I almost tripped over her My little nine-year-old daughter was sitting by the door listening to the stories. And on a complete impulse, I said, Anna, I'm going to write you a book. And she said, well, what kind of book, mommy? And I said, I'll write any kind of book you want. Uh, And she said, I want a vampire novel. And I I feel like I should say she had never read a vampire novel (laughs) at the age of nine. But, but, you know, she knew they're very high. This was around Twilight. She knew they're really high status among tweens. So I wrote her a book uh, that was designed to do a couple of things. So one is is to make her feel the heroine that I want her to be. And the other was to tell her all the things that I wanted to tell her when she was 17 and I was sure she was not going to be talking to me anymore. (laughs) But all those lessons, so how to have a male best friend, how to be a woman in a male-dominated setting, how to tell good nerds from angry nerds. And I embedded all those lessons into the books uh, and I wrote four of them. I finished the book 
And she wrinkled her nose and said, that's it. And I wrote five more. Oh, uh, by the end, I was so desperate. I was running out of storylines. I had to, I had to look them up, you know, and say, what are the three great myths? Oh, we haven't done a quest yet. Let's do a quest. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, she's 17 now and uh, she is talking to me. And we were having a conversation about a week ago uh, when we were talking about an, uh, an issue with a guy friend of hers. And we talked about it. And then I remembered that in one of the books I had actually written, anticipated that this problem might arise in her life. And I had written how the heroine dealt with it. And so I sent her the, the six paragraphs of the heroine with her, her manifesto about how to deal with this, with this uh, solution. So it was sort of funny that we'd come full circle. So maybe she's still talking to you because she wrote those great books way back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Dean Gherkin, um, I know you got to go. I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate your time. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I do hope we can do it again. And best of luck to you. I also want to say that as a graduate of the law school, I am just... I love what you're doing. I love your plan uh, for inclusion. I love the fact that you're really making Yale a a greater place. Uh, So thank you for that, too. Uh, Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. And you you do us proud. We're so delighted to see all of your successes. So thank you for having me on. Thanks, Dean Gherkin. Be well. Bye-bye. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me, Tanya Acker. Our editor is Jonathan Bourne. Our composer is Evan Cunningham. Our production assistant is Rachel Robillard. And our production consultant is Mike Agavino. Please go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a review. Maybe I'll read it on the air. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.